Welcome to the 370th episode of Constructed Criticism. I am your prompt host, Mason. Wait a minute, I already did this bit. And my never pizza bit co-host, Abe. Abe, how you doing? <laughs> uh, I'm doing great, Mason. You've almost now repeated a bit twice. Yeah, it, it, that that was a bit. You know, oh, can I just mulligan this intro? Can we do bit. it again? Do you, wanna, just... do you wanna mulligan the intro? Do you wanna do you wanna start again? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll edit this out. I'll edit this out. All right. Hello everyone, welcome to the 370th episode of Constructed Criticism. I am your Snap Keep host, Mason, joined by my aggressive mulliganing co-host Abe. Abe, how you doing? Doing great, sitting on five, but I like all of them. Nice, nice. That's the London for you. Yeah, I mean it the full London, the full English breakfast. Got your beans and toast. You know, <laughs> Splinter Twin situation right there. That's wow, <laughs> beans and toast is close to a Splinter Twin, that's for sure. That is for sure. Well, today we're actually we're talking about mulliganing, and it's a pretty exciting episode. This is actually our lost episode we referred to a couple uh, weeks ago when we took a week off randomly. That was because we lost this episode, so hopefully we don't lose this one. We were really excited to talk about this topic, and we were excited to get a chance to talk about it again once our regularly scheduled programming was over with the whole set reviews and stuff like that, now that we're in the Forgotten Realms. And I'm excited to do this one, Abe. Me too. It's uh, it was. I think we did a great job the last time we recorded it and it was lost so i'm hoping that everyone out there gets to love the great job we do a second time with it so it's great but before that it is time to talk about our always improving moments it is of course the main point of the show and abe i'll start things off this week uh talking about the forgotten realms you know that's been out recently and specifically limited um i went through and i've been playing a, a fair amount of draft not as much as you of course but uh, really trying to work on that sort of thing and trying to broaden my range a little bit and draft decks that aren't just bears and pump spells. Uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a big fan of the old combat trick, attack you format. You know, I'm a big fan of the Fearless Pup, Tormentor Helm. Uh, but yeah, I'm trying to expand that range and get a little bit bigger. So, some of that. Yeah, that's that's awesome. Yeah, uh, I've been doing some of that as well. As you said, I've been drafting a lot this set. I haven't, there's no like feels like there's not a lot of incentive to play constructed i might i might look at the insight stuff starting next week because uh looks a little interesting but uh yeah i've been non-stop drafting and also trying to like push the the boundaries of what i think are and aren't good decks or whatever what archetypes do and don't exist and you know just kind of really trying to explore all the cards i have to offer i think it's really always a good thing to do always good to touch base with uh with limited yeah, I agree with that for sure. Speaking of that sort of thing, Amy, you mentioned you know decks that aren't there. It's weird that you would say you're not interested in playing Constructed when Hammer Time is in Historic. Why do you, why um, do you hate fun? I was just curious. It's, do I hate fun, or is it just that I, I don't know, like booting up Historic, spending some amount of wild cards to go and play hammer time on arena when I could just play hammer time on moto is like, like, what am I doing it for, man? The, the fun of it. I'm having fun over on moto. It's great. Come on in Mason. The water's fine. You don't need historic. I think that my deck is a work of art and I think you're gatekeeping art by not allowing me to share this with you. And that, that yeah, hurts. If you stream it later, I'll definitely walk. 
All right. Yeah. Maybe maybe I'll stream a little just just to get the Abe view a little hammer. <laughs> I, I gotta tell you, dude, the Fireblade Charger with a Colossal Hammer on turn two has it's been fast. very funny. <laughs> it is very funny. <laughs> it's also funny that like, uh, because the main form of removal in that format's like a Skyclave apparition in the main deck. So that's like the hardest removal that you're just like so bad against it. It's funny. But uh, yeah, that yeah. sounds great. Yeah, it's a great time. It's a good time. Hammer time, everybody. So. My always improving. <laughs> uh, it actually has a little bit to do with Hammer Time. Oh, I'd love enough. to hear this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but it has to do with Modern Hammer Time. I We've talked a lot about how I feel about range and how important it is to, like, you know, have a huge range of decks that you understand how to play and how it really hurts you, I think, as a player developing to, like, pigeonhole yourself into one archetype or one strategy that you are, like, a specialist in or whatever, you know, like spending another like playing another league of like blue 8x control if you're a blue 8x control person or jund if you're a jund person or burn if you're a burn person like is is only as valuable as uh you know it can be at a certain point so i like to, to keep my range wide and we've talked about how some people like to see me as a certain type of player but there's a deck that uh i, I was thinking like you know like this hammer time deck uh our friend bob and cheese have been winning a lot on moto with it and i was like you know what i'm gonna go take it for a spin because it's a deck i haven't played before in the modern format and it would be really cool to see the format through this lens and make sure i'm like really actually doing the work when it comes to understanding you know how the format's been changing that's something that i uh put in my uh fearless magic inventory uh you know back when we talked about that on the show i think i brought it up uh, that like you know, when a format changes from under me, I often get a little lazy about making sure I understand how that happened. And in this case, like, getting out there and playing leagues with decks I'm not too familiar with and seeing, like, you know, how good is it? Why is it winning? You know, like, understanding, like, is it actually good? Is it just, like, you know, did it just spike something? Like, what's going on there? Uh, has been really, really good, and it definitely feels good to be playing, like, you know, something a little off the beaten off the beaten path or or well, a little it was at the time. rather than <laughs> yeah it, it was at the time this was you know i guess two weeks ago now because we've recorded so many sit review episodes but uh yeah like you know j just something different that's not super conventional not super like uh not super straightforward linear magic with like you know you know counter spell decks and ragavan decks is kind of like you know, you're setting up your engine or you're getting your threat down and protecting it, and that's just pretty simple. And I think a lot of people associate those kinds of decks and strategies with me. But, uh, you know, playing something that's very much not a control deck, kind of going back to my more, uh, like, combo aggro inclined roots of affinity uh, has been, it's been a lot of fun. And uh, I think I've, you know, not only, like, learned a bit about what's going on in the format in Modern, I've, uh, you know, made sure to refresh and maybe hone in on some of those skills and thought processes and thinking through the whole turn and how how it is I'm actually winning the game and my end game and things like that in a different context has been really helpful to me. Yeah, it sounds great. I'm so glad to hear that. I got to say, though, it has been funny watching people be like, hey, how do we beat these mid-range shells? 
Like, all these turn four decks are so good. And then someone was like, y'all know Blink Moth Nexus is real, right? And they're like, yeah, but you have to use those pump spells. And they're like, what if Hammer? And now yeah, everyone <laughs> plays Hammer. And so yeah. it, it is funny how uh, everyone forgot about Blink Moth Nexus for like two weeks. And, you know, it's like, oh, how are we going to beat the Asmiranda decks? It's like, well, if our thing's huge, that will win the game. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, uh, it's been a funny experience. And I'm so glad to hear that, too. I know it can be... Uh, Sometimes a little challenging. It can be also be like, ah, there's all these cool things for the things I like. Maybe I should do that. So that's a great always improving moment. Abe, do you know another way you can always improve? Uh, you know, I would love to hear one, Mason. It's pay to win, baby. Go to OasisGames.com <laughs> right now and buy your Ragavans, your Asmirandas, your Colossal Hammers. You can go over there and pick up the cards you want. Abe, I bought some Merktide Regents the other day. They got them cheap. They're on the way here. They're going to be here in time for my little 2K in two weeks. Two weeks from, three episodes from now, Abe, we get to come back and I get to tell you about the first Magic Tournament I've played in person in 2021 that had stakes. Wow. That's awesome. It's, I think I might also, it might not be that same week, maybe the weekend after. I think I have a 2K I'm eyeing let's locally as go. well but I, I don't want to i don't want to speak about it too soon because i don't want to like i don't want something crazy to happen you know so no, that, that's fair uh, i can i pre-registered today i'm in 90 people capped let's go that's good you got your spot i, I, I did yeah they, they and you're ready to <laughs> ready to get them with your your blue stalkers yeah the blue team stalker that deck's great that's the conversation for a different time but you can go to OasisGames.com and pick up your stuff so that when your events do come back or you get to play locally with your friends or, heck, play spell, uh, spell table online get some commander. Whole Butcher's gone. Today is a great and glorious day, apparently. You can go to OasisGames.com and do all of that and use code Would that be good for 4% back on every order and use code CCMTG to get 15% off your first order. Might I suggest making a big purchase with that to get the maximum 15% off, you know, like one Ragavan or a whole modern deck, either or. Uh, <laughs> make sure to go there to do that. Uh, yeah, and if you're someone who, I don't know, has just been super excited about, uh, you know, all the new cards they're gonna play with on arena from uh from forgotten realms and you're just excited to maybe bling out your arena collection you can go on over to our friends at gravevikinggames.com and uh check them out they got all of the you know pre-release codes that you could ever want to buy all the fnm promo packs whatever uh that have all of your favorite cosmetic goodies and boosties and and just six swag uh, available for cash and not gems so you don't have to like worry about making a bunch of other purchases you can buy them all at once and you can use code ccmtg for 10 percent off at checkout with them so sending into our main uh portion of the show for today abe and that is the mulliganing and we're going to kind of talk about what is mulliganing and how to approach it and how to use it because you know i think mulliganing is one of those things that uh, it happens at the beginning of the game, and it actually has some of the highest impact of any decision we make in the entire game. And so before we really get into that and why this is so important, do you want to briefly talk about what is mulliganing and kind of what we plan to cover today real quick? Uh, yeah, so, you know, obviously if you're, you know, someone who's played a lot of Magic, you know how a mulligan works, uh, which is that you open on a hand of seven cards, and if you don't like those seven cards, you can shuffle them back into your deck, and uh, now, thanks to London Mulligan, you will draw another seven cards and put one from your hand uh, back on the bottom if you want to keep that hand. Or you can Mulligan again and draw another fresh seven cards after shuffling and put that back two cards, etc. 
uh, going down a card each time for the option to kind of re-roll your hand as a way to, you know, mitigate the the variance of, uh, you know, lands and spells being how they are with how they come in different sets. Uh, and that's super and- <laughs> important, right? Because, like, yeah. mitigating variance is something that, well, first off, Magic players hate variance, as I've learned with the release of Forgotten Realms. But more <laughs> importantly, variance, you know, that is one of the ways to end your tournament, right? If you couldn't mulligan and you opened a hand with no lands or all lands, your chances of winning that round are so much lower. So getting to, you know, minimize that and get more hands to, like, the ideal curve you think of when building your deck is super powerful and super important. Yeah, yeah, and I think that, you know, as much as obvious, you want to be able to cast the spells that you have in your hand or... You know, you want to make sure that your hand functions in some way. We're going to spend some time talking about what that means as far as, you know, how to do that on a deeper level beyond just, oh, I have some lands and some spells I should keep. Uh, or like, you know, I have the colors of mana I need to cast my spells, I'll keep. Um, or, you know, looking at a hand and maybe mulliganing is just kind of some of the cases that go a little deeper on why it is mulliganing is so diff- difficult and how you can uh, improve the way that you mulligan. A hundred percent. So I, I think, you know, we, we kind of mentioned it here at the start, but this is the biggest edge that you can get in most matches of Magic. I would go as far as to say, Abe, that a large sum of games that I've won in my career in Magic have been decided at this point where by, by my opponents keeping a bad hand. And it's something that I don't think players really think about that all that often. You know, like after the round, you tell your opponent, like, uh, you tell your friends, like, oh, my opponent didn't have a great hand. It didn't work out very well. And that was them making a play choice, right? And making a decision. And by not making a solid one, most of the time, this kind of situation, they lost because of it. So that's why we're going to be talking about how important this is, because this is a huge moment. If you think about how long the average game of, let's say, modern lasts, right, Abe? It's, you know, maybe more recently, a little bit longer, but historically it's about four to five turns on average you know for an average modern game that means you see four or five cards in your draw step which means you see more than that with your opening seven so knowing what cards you have and what you can do and if your hand will work or not is actually a pivotal and super important and crucial part of the game that doesn't get talked about enough yeah i think that if you were to break down where games of magic are won like but like on a player to player level there's like this huge edge that happens in deck building where like, you know, if, if you look at two decks against each other, there's just going to be a way that, you know, one person's deck is built in a way that exploits the other deck. You know, if you have like, uh, I don't know, your control deck against their mid range deck where all your cards are better, or like you chose to play something, a control deck that's built to beat another control deck, right? Like that's a huge place you can get an edge or lose an edge depending on how your decks are built. Number two is sideboarding because it's putting cards in your deck. Although it might, Two is is pretty close with mulliganing because mulliganing is more important than most of the technical play decisions you make on the board because it's going to dictate what you have access to for a majority of the development of of most games of most constructed formats and is one of the most costly, like high risk, high reward decisions you can make. And so, uh, you know, it it really bears repeating that it is so important to think about critically all of the mulligans that you're taking and all the mulligans you're not taking like when you you know if you're mason's opponent there who just keeps a hand and is like oh i guess it might be fine and then loses like you know if you can't back up why that hand was good or like why it was a keep and you know the matchup and stuff especially in post sideboard games like you got to ask yourself 
was that better than six cards that might have had something more proactive? Like if you're playing, uh, if you're playing like Jund against Storm and you choose to keep a hand that just like has like three lands, a Tarmogoyf, a Liliana, and like a K Command or something, like in a Bloodbraid Elf, like is that really the hand you want against Storm? Was it not worth mulliganing the six to find a Thoughtseize or an Inquisition of Kozilek or a removal spell for like an early creature? You know, you just have to, it, it kind of, goes so deep on in every deck and in every matchup and every situation that it's it's just such a big decision that you always have to make in every game uh and so you know like really understanding it through and through is one of the most rewarding things and it's definitely one of the biggest things for your match wins yeah and that kind of goes into this next thing about how aggressively should we be mulliganing right and it, it's kind of hard to talk about this sort of thing because it's so deck dependent and matchup dependent, right? Like, for example, if you're playing like a traditional standard format and you're playing like a, I think of it like a Siege Rhino Abzan deck, which may be a little dated, but let's say something more like the Is It's Dragon deck in current standard, you know? You have a couple, you have some removal spells, you have some in-game threats, you have some ways to draw some cards. Your hands are very samey, right? There might be some cards you want in specific matchups more than others, like Frostbite and things like that. But for the most part, your, your hands look pretty similar to each other as compared to a deck of like humans. And a deck like humans really, really, really needs to have a one drop. In fact, listeners, if you've ever went to play humans before, but you've been too scared or whatever, I have the secret to be a good humans player. It is to mulligan until you have a one drop. You cannot keep hands that have six or seven cards that don't have a one drop, barring meddling mage automatically beating them. That's the secret. There you go. I did it. Congratulations, listeners. By listening this week, you can now play modern humans. A couple years late on that secret, but now you know. But, you know, jokes aside, that is an example of why mulliganing is so dependent on things, but you need to think about how your deck functions and how your deck's going to function in a matchup, right? So when we talk about aggressive mulliganing and how often we should do it, you should really think about what's your deck's game plan. And a deck like humans needs to lead on like champion into some sort of disruptive element into like a power card, right? Or it needs to Aether Vile so it can double spell or Noble Hierarch to cheat out like a Mantis Rider or something. And thinking about those sort of things are hypercritical to a deck's success. Yeah, like when you think about what it means to mulligan aggressively, it's like... Uh, often a term that's paired with having like a hate card in your deck or something that's like a huge trump is how aggressively should I mulligan for this thing? It can come up with like Leyline of the Void against Dredge decks uh, or like, you know, in Legacy, it can come down to like Force of Will against like the really fast combo decks. Like how important is it that you, that you have that versus, you know, keeping a hand that has more cards? Like what what is more... It is a single card more important than the one or two cards you trade by mulliganing down to five looking for it, you know, is the opportunity to have your rest in peace when you're playing against dredge is, is the opportunity cost of saying, okay, I'm going to start on five cards, but I'm going to have, you know, two more seven card looks at finding my rest in peace. Is that worth it for you? Or are there hands that you draw that maybe don't need the rest in peace to still have a game plan and are worth it because you don't have to, you know, a go through the risk of not finding it and having to keep a worse five card hand uh and b you know getting to, to have your all your cards like cards are still really valuable despite uh how polarized some matches can feel and it, it really does take a lot of knowledge about what cards are you looking for in the matchup what are the cards that are are there cards that are so essential that you need them like do you, you like are gonna need to have a if you're playing i don't know uh, a blue red Delver mirror or a blue red prowess mirror, you're going to need 
to have cards that can answer their creatures or have your own creatures that force them to answer them, right? You're going to need to have your Soul Scar Mage, your Monastery Swiss Spear on turn one. Uh, or like in uh, standard mono red right now, it's like, you know, you you ideally want to have, you know, a one drop, a two drop, and like an Anax, maybe an Ember Cleave, and just lands at that point. You need to have that kind of thing laid out because your deck needs to operate that consistently. And when you think about how aggressively you need to mulligan for something, it really takes a full consideration of what is it I'm trying to do in this exact matchup, and are the hand is the hand I'm looking at capable of doing it, or do I need to cast the spell called Mulligan that lets me shuffle this hand back in and draw a new seven and see if that can do it? It it really is like I don't know. It's like a vintage power level spell to be able to, to Mulligan with the London Mulligan and. It can be really tempting to do it a lot, but there is kind of a balance that has to be struck with uh, looking for something. You know, you can have like three or four Leyline in the Voids, but is it worth going down to four cards? Because when you have four cards and one of them is Leyline in the Void, you're on a mulligan into three, but you have this important card, you know, or you have your rest in peace, but you're on five cards and you're keeping like two lands, rest in peace, and two others. If you're playing against Dredge, and they have like a nature's claim or something. Was it really better than keeping a hand that maybe could have played a different kind of game if you're a you know control deck? It, these are questions you have to ask yourself, and and really it depends from deck to deck and matchup to matchup. What are the things that you are looking for and looking to accomplish with your hand, and are those going to be good enough to be what you think your opponent's going to be accomplishing? Yeah, yeah, that that's so important. You know, thinking about what kind of deck you are and it kind of, it kind of goes in our next point before we go there though i do want to mention a little bit more about like the ley line of the void situation you laid out uh, i used to call this like the stony silence syndrome where people would keep hands that are like six land stony silence and they're like aha your artifact deck is defeated in the arena of ideas i have stony silence and you have to and i know you mentioned this delay but i think it has to be kind of hammered home you have to have a game plan that's actually doable and I know that when you're looking at your hand, and for some players, when they see, like, seven cards, and it's got their hate card, like, Stony Silence, they want to keep, because the fear of mulliganing and getting to a hand that doesn't actually play or doesn't have Stony Silence is very scary. And the idea of being scared to mulligan, because you kind of have the thing you think you're supposed to have, is one that can sometimes lead to bad decisions. Uh, because by having a hand that doesn't actually play the game... Especially if your card is like Rest in Peace, which sometimes isn't good enough uh, against some some graveyard strategies just straight up that just have a game plan. Or Stony Silence might not work enough, you know, like Ursa Saga, for example, as a way to beat down. You're going to lose the game still despite having your hate card, let alone they don't have an answer for your hate card. And so you have to know when to be to mulligan and know not to be afraid to mulligan and not to feel like it's wrong or dumb. I think that that is a thing that we don't talk about enough, Abe, is how people are scared to mulligan. And it's okay to, you know, have that kind of fear and that sort of thing, but you have to know when to overcome it and when to be like, okay, like, this is a... I, I, th I know I think I'll lose if I don't find a Stony Silence, but just a Stony Silence is not enough to win. And so I need some more stuff, you know? And especially if your deck's a one that needs a lot of things to function, that might be something to consider, so... I just wanted to mention that because I know a lot of players, especially in the first drawing off, are scared to mulligan. They, they first, yeah. they're scared to mulligan because they, you know, don't think that like they're gonna <laughs> find the, you know, like I, they don't know to. I guess is to say. Then they learn it's super powerful, but then they're like, oh, well, it's strong, but this hand's pretty reasonable. I can't mulligan this sort of thing, right? 
or oh, I have my thing. So just want to mention yeah. that real quick. Yeah, it is like a very. I, I, it's something that's so <laughs> we've talked about this before, but it's something where, like, I when we recorded this episode and was lost, I actually like forgot that there was a point in my magic career where I was afraid of mulliganing because it was just like, I, I don't know, you like get the nerves and like the tension of like, Oh, I'm going down to like six cards. They're like all my opponents already ahead. And there's a lot of things that can really just be scary about having to take the risk and like, you know, throw your hand back and have things be out of your control again. Like at least if you keep the hand with the stony silence, you can say, well, you know, I like, boarded in stony silence and it wasn't good enough right but like of course i was supposed to keep the hand it had stony silence which is supposed to do the lifting for you but you know if the card doesn't do the lifting for you then and you kind of know that and you're kind of praying to draw something off the top then you know maybe you're better off you would have been better off mulliganing and in the same way like you know you don't want to be in the position if you think you're going to feel stupid or look stupid or your friends are going to you know poke fun at you because you looked at a hand with a stony silence and mulliganed it against the artifact deck but the hand didn't do anything and then you like you know your six card hand was unplayable and you kept a five that was kind of shaky and you lost nothing changed you were going to lose that seven card hand anyway so you know you should pat yourself on the back for taking that risk and don't be afraid of you know maybe looking dumb in the moment people who don't know uh like what you were thinking or what was going on when you can just you know, like like that that is going to keep you down more than it's going to help you, right? If you're trying to improve, you should be taking those risks on, you know, things that you in your heart know are right. And if you're wrong, it's okay to be wrong. We all make mistakes all the time. And especially when it comes to something like close about mulligans, I don't think I've ever had a discussion about a genuinely close mulligan with someone where there hasn't been like, an ultimate answer of well i mean we don't really have all the information and it's like it's really close i couldn't fault you for doing it or not doing it like when i talk about mulligans with like you know the best players i know or even hear conversations between pros about mulligans it's always like yeah i mean i guess like maybe you should like maybe that's a snap mulligan because of what i know but i could see how it's close it's never gonna be so bad that you're going to feel like an idiot, you know, like, and, and, you know, learning by doing is very important. So, yep. uh, you know, don't, don't let the fear of the negative outcome stop you from realizing the, uh, the upside of the positive outcome. Mm-hmm. I think the, one of the big things that we need to talk about though, is also mulliganing towards the type of hands that your deck is designed to do and i think this often comes up more with decks like humans like we mentioned earlier you know like trying to always get a one drop is something that the human deck really needs in order to function at max velocity but things like mid-range decks too you know like if you have four thought season two inquisitions you would like to discard them probably in the early game and so thinking about okay like how would my deck like to function if my opponent was there and i was gold fishing you know and it's like, all right, I'd like to like discard spell them on one, Tarmogoy with them on two, and then, you know, another threat plus discard spell on three, or a Liliana or something like that, you know, like a classic sort of curve out. And look towards your hands and look towards, am I able to execute this? And how close am I to executing this? Because very rarely is your hand actually going to be, you know, three lands, two Tarmogoy with two Thoughtseize. You know, that's just not yeah. a, a realistic <laughs> thing. If that is, I'm so happy for you. That you're probably one of the best players that's ever. That's why you foil out your Jund deck, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. Well, that, yeah, of course, you know. 
all gen players have to foil their deck out to be able to play. Um, but after that, you know, the buried entry is very high there. But you can use uh, Oasis Games to get a discount with that. <laughs> uh, but no, but seriously, like thinking about that sort of thing, and I know we've alluded to this to a bit, but uh, trying to get hands that are close to that is super important. And it is one of the real strengths of the Linden Mulligan. And Abe mentioned this kind of earlier, and this is one of the beauties of having the notes and having done it, is we get to set these things where you do get this really strong thing with the ability to put your hand back and draw new ones, and you should try to, in game one, do the thing your deck's trying to do. Because in theory, you brought your deck to the tournament because it does a thing that's really strong. And if you get to do your thing, you should win. This is like one of the advantages of aggro decks is often that they do their thing very quickly. And so their good draws win the game very fast. And if the opponent has a medium draw, their medium draws also win very fast. So if you brought hammer time to the tournament and you're keeping hands that can't cheat a hammer or don't have a way to get a hammer, you just have a bunch of Mim Knights and Ornithopters, you shouldn't be keeping these hands. They're not real hands. And they're not working towards what your deck's trying to do. And this is an example, you know, of being afraid to mulliganing or mulliganing ineffectively. And this goes the same way of mulliganing hands that are reasonable in the dark. You know, sometimes we, we talk about how if you know a matchup, Abe mentioned at the beginning of the show, like, is the Blood Braid, Colgon's Command, Bunch of Lands, Hand, really what, what you want against Storm? You're not doing anything until turn three? No. In the same aspect, if you're in the dark and your hand's maybe not so three-drop heavy... You kind of did come to grind when you play Junt. And you need to keep hands that will enable you to do what your deck tries to do with a lack of information on what your opponent's doing. Yeah, I mean, honestly, you bring up Hammer Time is really good because I think that uh, something that I've noticed, at least about playing Hammer Time, is that it's a deck where, like when I started, I was like, I'm not really sure how this combo is supposed to like, assemble itself. Like, how's this going to work out? Kind of just picked it up and entered a league was like i'll think my way through it and look at all the hands and and see how it plays out and i quickly realized i was like okay well i think that because my deck has so many ways to find hammers the thing i should really focus on having is either a pure steel paladin or a cigar to and so i was like okay i'm gonna mulligan i don't need both because i have so many ways to find a hammer and it's so much easier for them to like deal with a hammer on a creature than to deal with an aid so i just want my hands to be able to go turn one cigar to aid or set up a pure steel paladin uh and maybe have like a stoneforge mystic or something and doing that i was instantly off to the races like i think that there's a lot of people out there who might only think that it's like okay well you know dex colossus hammer i have a hammer i've got some lands and like some creatures i'm just gonna keep this and draw cigar or draw pure steel but uh in that sense it's like you've got to think about what the important part of your deck to find is right like finding the uh finding the enablers that are good in play versus the ones you have a lot of redundancy on, like which one do you have more of means that that's the one you want less and which one's more important to get in play, which one makes your deck work more is important to understand sometimes. Like with like a uh, legacy elves, um, a lot of times it can be tempting to keep hands that have like a natural order and like, you know, a couple of creatures and some lands, but really in that deck, it's a lot more important to have like your mana set up than it is to have your threat figured out because what your deck is designed to do just like how hammer time is designed to kind of produce the hammer and put it on the thing what your deck's designed to do is operate from a position where it has a bunch of mana when you're playing an elves deck or you know in the sense of the hammer deck your deck is designed to operate by having a couple of creatures maybe an ink moth uh 
and then finding a hammer. It's designed to do that thing. So let it do that thing, but focus on the part that is like prerequisite to you doing anything powerful with a deck like that. Or in the sense of like Jund, you know, your deck is designed to slow the game down and stop their development enough that you can win just because your Tarmor waves are good, you know? And so the same way, you got to let your deck do what it's designed to do, which is slow that game down to the point where you can find your Raging Ravine or Tarmogoy for Treetop Village or Bloodbraid Elf, whatever it is that is going to do the job and pull you ahead. Uh, you know, but, but the thing that needs to happen for those cards to do their most effective work in your strategy is going to be slowing down the game. So focus on focus on taking the game a step at a time when you're mulliganing or what you're thinking about when you're mulliganing uh, and like what you're going to do. I think that something that really opened my eyes to that early on was playing control decks. Uh, and part of why I probably like them so much is that you really do just kind of want to be able to hit your land drops and maybe interact by like turn two or three in a lot of traditional control decks. You know, like if your hand is like some lands, a path exile, a snapcaster mage and a cryptic command, like if that was your seven card hand, four lands, path, snap, cryptic, you're in there. That's the best hand you could ask for because the thing you want to do in the early part of the game is develop your mana and not die. And that hand does it so well and continues to do it so well into the late game because it has cards to pull it ahead. So really just think about how your deck is supposed to work. What's the game supposed to look like when it plays out and try to make sure your mulligans line up to that. And then the next part is thinking, okay, I know how I want my deck to play out. Now that I know what match, if I know what match I'm playing against on like an MTG melee tournament where I've opened deck lists, or you know I just know what the guy's playing at FNM, or it's game two or game three, think about how is this game supposed to play out? What does my deck want to do in this matchup? And then when you look at your hand, think about is this hand going to accomplish that, or is this hand going to play into what I don't want to do in the matchup? That happens a lot with like standard rogues, where maybe you have a hand that uh, you know doesn't have enough mill enablers but has these interactive spells or into the story which seem really powerful against maybe a matchup like Sultai that's already really good for you so you might think you can keep a worse hand quote unquote like a, a hand that's not as powerful but uh, it kind of works the opposite way right like you because it's a good matchup you kind of get to look for the hands that really operate in the way you want to because it is more important to set up to be able to be mana efficient against them and be applying pressure in real ways than it is to uh to like necessarily resolve your draw for and pull ahead. Yeah, that's a huge thing to talk about. I, I think often when players are in good quote unquote matchups or matchups they perceive to be good, they keep these worse hands because they're like, well, the matchup's good. Well, typically the reason the matchup's good is because your deck's doing the thing it's supposed to do. So if you keep worse hands, even if they have one more card, they're likely not to function if your opponent's kept good hands, you know? Like, a bad 7 out of, let's say, you know, Jund against Affinity, right, is way worse than a good 6 Affinity hand. And that is ways that you lose percentage points, and it matters a lot uh, in these matchups that are typically supposed to be the ones you can win. And I'll let you in on a secret for when it comes to doing well in tournaments. You know, sometimes people, hey, I, sometimes you're going to ask the question, like, how do you do well, or how do you win, or something like that? The answer is you win the ones you're supposed to win. you got to win a couple you're not supposed to right but you can't be yeah. losing good matchups because you kept these bad hands and the rogue deck is a great example you know it's like oh this whole time matchup's good i got these creatures yeah i don't have any you know 
things in our mill. I have a bunch of just counter spells. That's fine. I'll, I know it's fine. It's whatever. It's going to happen. And they're going to have plans for you and that sort of thing. It's not like they didn't come in with a plan for your tier one deck. That they, you know, they weren't like, well, I hope not to play against one of the most popular decks in the room today. It's just not going to happen. So, yeah, you need to make sure that you're, you know, in your bad matchups, mulliganing, you know, just as much, if not more, to get, or you're sorry, your good matchups, just as much, if not more, in order to make sure that you are winning those matchups. Yeah. And, and really, it comes out of familiarity. I think that's one of the places where your understanding of the deck you're playing comes out the most and uh, really where you can get the most return if you're just trying to play some matches and take what you learn from those matches into um, into a tournament is think about the games you've played of a matchup and how they play out and what you want to accomplish. So when you have to take that mulligan or you have to decide on that close hand, you can guide yourself with some amount of experience on like, you know, like, yeah, sure, this hand is fine, but against, you know, I'm playing humans against Arclight Phoenix. This hand like, is fine, but, uh, you know, any hand with Athalia or I really need a Reflector Mage or something, that can matter so much more to you in certain matchups, and so you've just got to dig deeper. Um, and knowing that and taking that away from the time you actually spend practicing, I think is, is really easy and really uh, just a really good thing to try to get for free, even if all you want to do is jam, you know? Yep. Like building up that base of repetition of knowing how your deck, how your aggro deck functions, how your mid range deck functions, how your mid range deck, how a mid range deck plays against an aggro deck, the kinds of cards you want, the dynamics between those cards, those kinds of things all just kind of stick together in your brain uh, from the games you play and, and help you help you get better at it. But uh, it really is something where you should think about it every time if you if you really want to get better at mulliganing. And the better you all, there are people who I think play some fantastic technical magic, who I know, who makes some really, really loose keeps. And I think it holds them back a lot of the time. And I think that if you're someone who maybe makes a blunder or two here or there, but never keeps a bad hand, you might even be further along than some of them because it's really, really important. It's just so, I cannot stress how important it is just understand the whole thing so yeah well that's actually going to do it on our main topic for mulliganing i hope that you got something from this episode when it comes to its main topic and how important it is to mulligan and hopefully these little stories and anecdotes and rules of thumbs can help you when you're out there and you're playing those tournaments yourself where you're on arena grinding and you're able to make some better decisions and improve your game that way and get those extra percentage points it's very rare that we get to do an episode that's sort of timeless that helps you actually improve long term. And mulliganing is one of those biggest things when it comes to that. And so hopefully, you know, with this, you'll get a big edge in your upcoming games. Earlier, we mentioned a way to support us, and that was to go to our great sponsors like Oasis Games and Great Viking Games. But there is another way, and that's actually go to patreon.com slash ccmtg. The show will always be free. But if you want to get back to us, you get access to Discord where we kind of talk, share deck lists, things like that happen. And another perk of being in the Discord is we actually ask everyone, hey, we're going to do an episode here later today or tomorrow. Do you have a Patreon question? And this is the question from when this episode originally aired. So we're going to run it back now for them. And that is, what are some tips you might have from switching between online and paper? I asked because paper events are showing up again. And I found in the past that I got really sloppy when I go back to paper from playing online a lot. And Abe, I'm going to, you know, 
kind of tackle this one here. It's funny. I, I mentioned the last couple of weeks about how uh, one of my goals when I was playing in paper was to make you know tight technical plays, not do anything too sloppy and silly. I think that's one of them, slowing yourself down and thinking about it a lot. Um, I find in paper it's much easier for me to do that. I think the act of me having to physically move and touch the cards changes it a lot, and it feels less like a game where sometimes arena to me feels more like a video game than magic and magic feels more like a its own thing when i play it in person and it's much easier for me to get in the zone so uh, i think slowing yourself down is a really big thing to help when it comes to switching between online and paper um magic feels a little faster online but uh you get to take your time in person and think things through and do things methodically i think that is a really big one abe do you have any big tips um yeah, I think uh, I think everyone's kind of had this. I usually have it when I go from playing paper a lot to starting to play online after maybe taking a long break, uh, which I look forward to be able to say I can do <laughs> at some point of taking a long break from playing online magic for paper magic. But um, yeah, you know, like it's hard to, uh, especially if you play only arena, like, you know, maybe you're used to all the triggers happening on their own and how they resolve. Uh, or not having to remember them. But I think ultimately, and this is something I think is just true for almost any ailment you can have if you feel like you make sloppy mistakes uh, or just don't play too clean in paper, is to slow down and take your time and think through everything that you're doing. You know, think through, okay, I'm going to attack with these creatures. This ability is going to trigger. I'm going to announce it. It's going to do this to the board. And really just make sure you're not missing anything uh, anything big by assuming it's going to happen. I think that's like a, a really big thing. Um, person actually found that I do a little bit better switching, or at least with post-COVID, or I guess post-vaccination for me, I was able to play some FNM, do a little draft, and the way I was playing in paper I felt was a lot cleaner than I'd been playing online recently. And I think that part of that came from the fact that I was able to lock out my other distractions. I know that I'm pretty guilty, but I'm sure I'm not the only one who likes to listen to a stream or watch anime or some TV show on like a second monitor or on the TV while they're playing, not give it their full attention. But when I was able to give my full attention to magic and pay attention to everything going on, not only was I able to talk myself through avoiding missing the little things, that uh, are easy to forget about or miss, like, you know, Mishra's Bobble triggers or Surveil triggers off of my Dragon's Rage channeler or, you know, even just planning out my turns, thinking about the game I'm playing. Um, it it just felt a lot easier to get honed in. Mm-hmm. That's true. That's fair. So, you know, and I found myself slowing down and noticing things that like i didn't necessarily think i would have noticed before or definitely wouldn't have noticed online i was avoiding bigger mistakes or able to think more afterwards about the decisions i had made so you know if you're really worried about playing sloppy because you're making the transition just take the extra time to to make sure you don't get lazy with it you know if you're already aware that sometimes you get really sloppy then it should be in your mind that like, okay, I might be making a mistake here. I might like, you know, I might not announce this trigger. So I'm going to write it down, make it extra clear to myself. Like in my, on my life pad at the start of the tournament, I'm going to write down, don't 
like always announce prowess you know like always make sure you announce that trigger or uh you know draw that card untap that land use that planeswalker whatever it is um but you know as always just try to focus on playing the game you're playing and using the time you have and not feeling rushed but not playing too slow and just letting you know it's magic you play you've probably played it a lot and uh you know it it's also i think important to not beat yourself up about it too if you make those mistakes i think that happens to people and like uh you know you you play sloppy and you make a small error and you let it like snowball into a bunch more small errors like you're human sometimes those things are going to happen and we're all human like it is hard to make transitions and changes especially when you're used to you know maybe you've resolved a robber the rich trigger eight thousand times on arena without having to do it once in paper and the second you go to do it in paper you're you might forget and that's fine you know you've you've got to you've got to be patient with yourself a bit so yeah I, I think the best advice is just slow down take your time and uh and try your best to avoid it maybe you know think about and envision the things you might see yourself doing wrong and remind yourself before you're around that you're not going to do those things wrong because you know what they are and you know what you're looking out for and you can be uh, be prepared for it awesome great well thank you all so much for listening to this episode of constructed chrism i hope that, that patreon question was helpful for you as well and we will see you all back next week for another episode of constructed chrism 